WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome this hour to the Bible Line. If you're a first-time listener, we especially welcome you. So glad you could join us for the next hour. If you're new, what we do for the next 60 minutes are take people's questions. You may have a particular issue you're facing in life and you'd like biblical counsel on, or maybe you're studying a passage of Scripture that's been challenging and you need some help in understanding it in its context. Feel free to call us again locally, 525-1859, toll-free, 877, the call letters, WHEP 980, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is uh, TBL for the Bible line at net. Rick, always, it's great to be here. It is indeed, Pastor, and uh, we are excited about uh, another uh, week here in the Bible Line. As you uh, did indicate, uh, we do always carry the Bible Line online. If anybody has any questions that uh, they are um, wanting to ask but didn't get a chance to listen to it or possibly they uh, uh, they want to listen to it again, they can do that. So, um uh, that's always available online at WAGP.net. And I'm actually looking at our online uh, listing of, there we go. Okay, we were having some issues with our online connection now, so let me click that open, and we'll get to some of the questions that have been uh, dictated to us. And uh, in the meantime... And when you call, if you have a question, feel free to uh, go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate the question to Deb who's uh, sitting here in the studio next to us. And when you dictate it, it pops up on the screen in front of us. Uh, and we'll do our best to try to respond to each and every question you might have. And again, uh, we get a wide variety of issues that people face. Sometimes it's a personal issue and they want counsel on or, or just a difficult passage of Scripture that they need help on. And, and of course, uh, because this ministry is now broadcast through the Internet, they come in from all over the world. So let's go to the first one, Rick, and we'll get started. All right. Carrie writes, what would your answer be to a person who says God's Word was written by people and not God? I remember you saying over so many people wrote the scripture in so many continents and so on, but I can't remember all that you said. Well, there's a there's a lot, and I uh, that to, that's worth considering when you respond to a question: how to prove the Bible's true? How do we know that the Bible is the only book God ever wrote? And it's an excellent question, and it's one that we as believers need to be able to respond to. I wrote a little booklet. It's on Amazon. It's also contained in Answers in Genesis. Uh, in one of their apologetic books, and it's it basically, how do we know the Bible is true? Uh, you don't have to buy the whole Answers in Genesis book. Uh, if you want just that booklet, which is a chapter within it, yeah, I go through five proofs for the authority of the Bible. How do we know the Bible is the only book God wrote? If you go to Amazon, you'll see it. Type in Carl Brogy, it will pop up. 
Um, in either case, and I don't make any money off it, so I'm not here to sell books. Uh, I'm here to get God's word out and and for people to uh, learn what scripture says and how to defend our, our faith. There's a lot of ways in which we can reason the Bible is true. Number one, the people who wrote it. Uh, they, of course, claimed inspiration. You say, well, that's kind of a circular argument. Anyone could write a book that claimed to be inspired. Well, that's true. But you have to consider the character of those who made that testimony. In any court of law, a person's character is essential to whether or not he's believable. And so most people aren't prepared to call Jesus a liar or a wicked person or a false prophet. Even unbelievers have a certain respect for him. And of course, he said that the scriptures were inspired. Most people aren't willing to say the same of the apostles. They would say, well, there were decent men who firmly believed in their cause and reasonable men and men of integrity, not not uh, hoodlums. And uh, no, of course not. And so you have to look at the character of those who certainly wrote the book. Um, you mentioned, uh, yes, that the Bible is a uniquely put together book. It's written over the course of 1600 years by about 40 different authors uh, from all walks of life. Some were kings, some were governors, some were shepherds, some were prophets, all different types of people, most of whom never met each other. Over 1600 years, 40 approximate authors, couple books we might debate on, but about 40 authors, three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Uh, it was written on three different continents, and, and yet when it's all brought together, it's one book, 66 individual books, but one book because there's a continuity from Genesis all the way to Revelation. So you have the unique character of the Bible. You have the people who wrote it. And of course, you have its proven accuracy. Uh, the Bible has never been proven wrong or incorrect. Uh, now, there have been people at different times in history who have said, well, there's mistakes in the Bible. The French Institute of Science in the early 1800s published 80 errors in the Bible, 80 so-called historical, ar archaeological, scientific errors as they saw it. Not a single one exists today. For instance, the Hittite people were written in the Bible as a major civilization. Yet it's not until 1906 that archaeology uncovers the Hittite people. And we discover, my, they are an advanced people on the same level as the Egyptians or the Romans. In fact, now at the University of Chicago, there's an entire chair dedicated to the Hittite people. Uh, so there's a continuity uh, in the Bible, and it's never been proven wrong. Now, what if we had never uncovered the Hittite people? That doesn't change the fact that they still existed. And when you look at the overall character of the Bible, uh, it shows that it is indeed an accurate book. Luke, for instance, uh, writes of Quirinius, the governor, and uh, we know that um, uh, for many years people said, well, Quirinius could not have been the governor. Uh, when the census was uh, taken because uh, he had to, um, we don't have a record of him serving as governor then. We, we have a, a record of him serving much later, like 6 to 8 AD. Uh, well, uh, the truth is he served twice, and we didn't know that for a long time, where we could come to a place and say, hey, look, right here, in these uh, historical writings outside of the Bible, it proves that Quirinius, the governor, served twice, and the Bible is true. Again, that didn't change its truthfulness. Pontius Pilate, we have no record of him uh, outside of the Bible until 1961. 
And at Caesarea by the sea, they were doing an archaeological dig and they uncovered a stone that had Pontius Pilate's name written on the cornerstone uh, as the governor who uh, was responsible for having that particular building erected. So the Bible's never been proven wrong. And not to mention you have fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. There's over 300 prophecies alone just concerning the first coming of Christ. And every single one of those prophecies was literally fulfilled. You know, there are no prophecies in the Upanishads that the, that the Hindu people use. There are no fulfilled prophecy in the book of Quran. Uh, there's no fulfilled prophecy in the book of Mormon. Only in the Bible. Now, there have been other books that have been, quote unquote, prophetic in nature. Um, Nostradamus, who lived in the 1500s, supposedly wrote a book that was filled with prophecy. But they were so general, so vague, they could apply to a million things. And when he got specific, almost always he was wrong. Uh, For instance, um, he predicted the world would end in 1999. Well, we're still here. And so only the Bible has fulfilled prophecy in it because only God knows the future. And if God inspired the Bible, then you'd expect the prophecies that he wrote of to be literally actually fulfilled. So the Bible is a unique book, but I would suggest you get that little booklet, how to prove the Bible is true. And I think it would uh, give you just some good ammunition. But when, when you take all the air out of the balloon, just think of it practically for a moment. Uh, who was the Bible written by if it was was not written by God? Was it written by bad men or was it written by good men? Well, if it was written by bad men, then, um, then you know, they would never have written a book that would condemn them, that would, uh, in essence, uh, sentence them to an eternity in hell. So that doesn't make any sense. And if it was written by good men, then these men are not really good because the Bible would then be filled with lies because over 3000 times they say, thus saith the Lord in one way or another. They're saying that God himself is speaking through them, not to mention the implications of such lies. The apostles uh, wrote and recorded books, uh, supposedly uh, quoting the words of Jesus as the critic would say. Um, And yet uh, they you know, spoke to the fact that people would die for their faith and lose their life because they were Christians. And indeed millions have, well, those were those good men, you know, getting people to believe a lie by which they would lose their lives. So none of it makes sense except to say that God wrote through good men, uh, who indeed gave us the Bible, um, what we call the whole Holy Bible today. Good question. Um, and it's an important question. It's one of the apologetic questions that we cover in the discovery class at community Bible church. We have a 45 week discipleship course and one section of the course deals with a difficult questions. Like how do we know Jesus is the only way? How do we know the Bible is true? What about people who've never heard the plan of salvation? And we need to be able to teach our children apologetics. And a lot of basic apologetics are being undermined in evangelicalism today. Uh, there are evangelicals who are saying, well, it doesn't really matter if we believe in a, you know, an old earth or a young earth, whether we believe in a six day creation or, or whether there's big gaps of time. Yes, it matters. We are undermining the authority of the word of God when we deny what God has plainly said. And when the scriptures are typically rejected in the church, they end up being rejected in the home. And we wonder why so many are walking away from the faith in our day. 
kids who are really not genuinely converted. They get to college uh, and they have professors who just attack, 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 attack both the moral teachings and the historical uh, claims of the Bible. And they get kids to believe it's not true. And and supposedly 80% of so-called evangelical kids are walking away from the faith. Obviously, those kids were not saved. But I think rooted in their lack of salvation goes back to the pulpits where God's word has been questioned when folks say it doesn't really matter. It does matter. These are really important issues. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. Our next caller dictated their question. I don't think we've ever asked this one. After Jesus' resurrection, he told Mary Magdalene not to touch him, but then he tells Thomas to touch his nail-scarred hands. Why did he have one touch him but not the other? Well, it's a good question, and it's a common question. Uh, Literally, he said, don't cling to me because uh, I'm going to ascend to my father. In other words, I've not yet ascended to my father. And so his point was, Mary, you don't have to hold on to me like you're never going to see me again because I'm going to be here for some time yet. And indeed, he was there for some time. He walked on the earth for 40 days after that resurrection Sunday, and then he ascends to the Father. So she was a little panicked, obviously, and she was thrilled that her Savior was indeed the Savior of the world, that he was alive, proving that he could pay for sin. And she didn't want to let him go. Uh, But it was an unfounded fear. And that's all Jesus is saying. Thomas, of course, uh, said, unless I, you know, put my hands in the nail holes and my 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 hand in the side, then, you know, I won't believe. And of course, uh, the, the, the scripture never records that he actually literally did that. Well, Jesus, let me hold your hand. But it was obvious to him that the one in front of him was the resurrected savior of the world. Very good. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Lee from Las Vegas, Nevada, emailed us and asked the following. She says, there are two accounts of the death of Aaron. Numbers says that Aaron, with his son Eleazar and Moses, ascended Mount Hor. There, Moses uh, stripped Aaron of his priestly garments and transferred them to Eleazar. Aaron died on the summit of the mountain, and the people mourned for him 30 days. The other account is found in Deuteronomy 10, verse 6, where Aaron died at Moserah and was buried. From what I've read, there is a significant amount of travel between these two points. Could you please clarify this for me? Well, it's a good question, and I uh, taught a course on bibliology that is online at searchthescriptures.org, and I think I taught it over uh, 50-some Wednesday evenings. It's not for the faint of heart. Uh, There's over 400 pages in notes, and one of the sections in the course is alleged discrepancies in the Bible. I don't cover this particular one because it's too easy. I deal with the more difficult, challenging ones, and even most... uh, Uh, secular scholars don't see this as a contradiction. Uh, It is true in Numbers 20 and in Numbers 33, it says that Aaron died on Mount Hor and that in Deuteronomy 10, and uh, you give me the reference here, verse 6, which I've just turned to, that he died on Moserah. Um, But let me also say, if you uh, have a Bible with cross notes and you look out in the margin, uh, we'll also direct you to the book of Deuteronomy, same book, chapter 32 and verse 50. And here is uh, the Lord. It says, and the Lord spoke to Moses that very same day saying, go up to this mountain of the uh, Abarim, Mount Nebo, 
which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for possession. Then die on the mountain where you, uh, where, where you ascend and be gathered uh, to your people as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. So let's give Moses some credit. Even if you deny Mosaic authorship, uh, which is foolish because Jesus told us that Moses wrote the Torah. And so if Jesus believed it, that's good enough for me. But uh, even if some liberal scholar denies um, Mosaic authorship twice in the book of Deuteronomy, it records the death of Aaron. So in Deuteronomy 32 here in verse 50, it says he died on Mount Hor. And then on Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse six, which you reference, he died on in Moserah. Um, and it's interesting because one says in Moserah and the other says on Mount Hor. And I think that's significant because Moserah was the larger area that included Mount Hor. So it's correct to say that he really died in either place. It'd be like saying, well, someone died in uh, Okatee, or you could say, uh, someone died, um, you know, in, in Beaufort County, which is correct. Well, they're both correct. Moserah was the broader area, uh, the, um, uh, county, as we might say, and uh, Mount Hor was a specific place within the county. So there was no contradiction. Uh, the, the word of God never contradicts itself. And I know you know that, uh, and, but you're trying to defend it. Uh, that's an easy one. Uh, most, most secularists don't even debate that one because it is clear within the text itself. There's much more difficult ones, and I cover that in our course on Bibliology. I deal with the hardest ones that people usually throw up in the face of believers. But you ask it because uh, there are uh, websites that deal with, they're totally dedicated to attacking the Bible. And they're defending what they call errancy in the Bible, not inerrancy. They, they say the Bible is filled with mistakes in every text that they think contradicts uh, another uh, they will pull up. And so they might cleverly say, well, twice in Numbers it says this, and once in Deuteronomy, but they don't tell you there was actually a second text in Deuteronomy where it equally says that he died on Mount Hor as the two texts in the book of Numbers record. So they're very slick. Uh, they're agents of the evil one. They're out to destroy the faith of uh, naive people. And uh, it's unfortunate, but as Peter said, they distort the scriptures to their own destruction. In the end, they will meet the living God for mocking his word. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. And our next question was dictated, how is it that churches and whole denominations are interpreting the Bible so incorrectly as to allow them to do uh, endorse things that the Bible clearly says are sin. Where do they go so wrong? Do the pastors know they are teaching apostasy? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And there are certainly apostates and in the word apostasia means to fall away. And so we use the noun form of it, uh, an apostate. An apostate is someone who's fallen away from the faith, the faith being uh, not an act of faith, but as it's used uh, a couple of times in the Bible and Acts and in the book of Jude, uh, the truth that has been delivered by God through the apostles. Uh, today, we would say the whole 66 books of the Bible, the faith delivered once for all, we are called as believers to contend for it in the book of Jude. 
And so there are people who have uh, come into Christendom. They look Christian, but they're really not. And in their unbelief, they have fallen away from the truth. Uh, just a couple of days ago, the cardinal of the uh, Roman Catholic Church in um, in Germany came out and basically uh, gave a very loose acceptance of homosexual, lesbian, uh, transgender people in the Roman Catholic Church in Germany. I suspect, and I certainly hope I am wrong, but I suspect that the sexuality conference that is going to happen in the fall of this year, that the uh, Pope of Rome will do a similar thing, where he'll say, well, homosexuality is sin, but if you are gay, if you are transgender, uh, whatever your situation is, you're welcome not just to come into the Catholic Church, but as they said, in, because really any evangelical church should say that everyone is welcome. We, we, we want to win these people to the Lord Jesus. Um, but they're not only welcome, they're able to participate in the communion service and in the service of the church, which is what the church at Rome in Germany, the cardinal there ruled just a few days ago. And I suspect maybe the Pope of Rome will do the the same thing. Um, And so there's a difference between saying, well, homosexuality is sin and it doesn't really matter because that's basically what he has said. He said, well, it's sin. I'm not denying the teaching of the church. Uh, but uh, we'll condone it in such a way that you can be a member of good, in good standing in Roman Catholicism. Oh, no, 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 no. That's double talk. That's twisting the scriptures. And that's what, um, you know, a lot of our mainline denominations across the country have done. And it basically comes down to, to get to the core of your question, how is it that whole denominations are interpreting the Bible so incorrectly? There are two issues. There's an issue of, A, is the Bible authoritative? And B, how do we interpret the Bible? So there's not only an issue of the authority of Scripture, but there's hermeneutical issues, issues of interpretation. Uh, In the mainline denominations, they already deny, for the most part, the authority of the Bible. Um, One of uh, an early, uh, uh, the American Baptist denomination, for instance, in 1928, came out and said, well, the Bible's inspired, it's just not inerrant. Uh, In the 1950s, the United Methodist Church said the Bible's inspired, it's not inerrant. We have cooperative Baptists in our own town that say the Bible's inspired, but it's not inerrant. We have PCUSA churches in our own town. The local PCUSA pastor just came out in favor of gay marriage. Um, How do they come to those conclusions? Well, they either say, A, um, the Bible's not authoritative because it has errors in it. And so they have to be uh, inspired, so to speak, to pick out what sections are true and what sections are false. They have to be inspired to spot the spots that they say are correct and those spots that are incorrect. And that's, uh, you can't do that. It's either all God's word or it's not God's word at all. Or sometimes there's hermeneutical issues where they interpret the Bible where they'd say, well, no, we're we're not saying the Bible has errors in it. It's we just interpret it differently from you. And so, for instance, the uh, chaplain at uh, Harvard University, when he was interpreting uh, Romans chapter one, uh, it says, uh, therefore, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for lie. 
Uh, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, the men also abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire one towards another, men with men committing indecent acts. And they would say, well, if God created you heterosexual and you adopt a homosexual lifestyle, then you are in sin. But if God made you homosexual, then you're not in sin. And so they twist the scriptures, as Peter said again, to their own destruction. So how do we interpret the scripture? We interpret it in its historical grammatical context. And so if you believe that God inspired the whole of scripture, then you have to believe that God is not going to make any mistakes in the Bible. So if in one text of scripture, he says that this is an evil, then you have to be consistent in interpreting another text of scripture. So um, God says in first Corinthians six, do you not know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor feminine, and on the list goes, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then, of course, we have hope in the next verse, for it says, in such were some of you. So the Supreme Court of the United States does not dictate the morality of the church. The church is the one who is to affirm the morality of God. We don't let the Supreme Court do that. So when God even talks about a secular law, he makes this statement. He says, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for unholy and profane, for those for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So God, when he speaks of human law, which ideally should reflect um, a God's law, uh, and this was a, a basis for making legal decisions for a long time in England and, and in our own country, what we call natural law, where the law of God has been written into a person's heart. And that's why even today, when you go to various cultures of the world where they don't even have a Bible, never seen a Bible. They have a certain moral code that they live by. So when my friend Dwayne went to minister to the Arumba people, they already had dictated that it was wrong to take someone else's possessions, that it was wrong to take someone else's wife, that it was wrong to take someone else's life. Why did they know that? How did they know that? They had never read the Old Testament scriptures, never seen the first verse of the New Testament. How could they know that? Because as Romans 2.15 says, the law of God has been written into their hearts. And so Paul reasons here, even men recognize that human law is not written for righteous people, but for the lawless. Why? To curb evil behavior. For the profane, for those who kill their dads and moms, for murderers, for immoral people, for homosexuals, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, anything that's contrary to sound teaching. So if the Supreme Court of the United States says homosexuality is a person's civil legal right, then they are going against, they're doing a 180 on what God says, and they are fulfilling Romans 1 where they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship themselves, their own intelligence, and they suppress the truth that God has written into their hearts. 
And so when people do that long enough, God gives them over to a depraved mind. The word depraved in the uh, in many of the Slavic languages is translated into the upside down mind. And that's not bad. That's not a bad rendering of the Greek. They basically call evil good and good evil. And when a society as a whole adopts that kind of mentality, it has reached its lowest point. And when it adopts that kind of mentality, things only get worse in the culture. And, uh, and that's where I am afraid we are moving as a nation. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7977. There we go. And then you can email us at tbl at net. Our next question was dictated a second ago. A woman was married many years ago to an unbeliever who just up and left her. She believes he went back to his country of origin. She cannot find him, so she has no idea if he's living or dead. She is wondering what you think about whether she is free to attend church and date a Christian man now. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that you're asking the question, and it's an important question. Some some would say, go ahead, get married. I, I don't see that in Scripture uh, for a number of reasons. Um, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 he is addressing various questions that have been written to him. And so 7.1 is a hinge verse in the book of Corinthians in his first letter. Now concerning the things about which you wrote. And so they wrote to Paul with a number of different questions. And uh, whether, you know, they should give away their virgin daughters in marriage in light of the persecution and all the different things that were going on. And, and uh, what about different situations that married couples have? And that's kind of what you're asking here. To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not send his wife away. But to the rest, I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through the believing husband. So he he looks at two different scenarios, one that is introduced with the words, um, but to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. And then in the second scenario, the opposite formula to the rest, I say, not the Lord. What is he um, articulating? Well, in one instance, he's affirming that what I am about to say is not something that I came up with as an apostle, but something the Lord Jesus taught. In the second scenario, when he says to the rest, I say, not the Lord, he's saying this is something that the Lord Jesus did not address during his earthly ministry. But as his apostle, I'm going to tell you what he thinks. And he's writing again under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So your question really falls into the first case. To the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. Uh, But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Where on earth did Jesus speak to that? In his teaching on divorce and remarriage. He said, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, he commits adultery. He said, if a woman who's never been married marries a divorced man, she's committing adultery. How, how so? Well, because only death is to sever the marriage 
bond. And so Paul in Romans chapter seven, when he is helping us to understand our relationship to the law, it goes back and he illustrates it with marriage for the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined or married, you could render it as many translations do. If she is joined or married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So she is not an adulteress, though she is joined or married to another man. In other words, Paul is saying, like Jesus, that only death is to break the marriage bond. So you have the situation that Paul is dealing with where someone walks away out of the marriage. And he says, I'm telling you what the Lord said. Uh, This is what he taught. It's recorded in the Gospels that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, and by the way, God sometimes gives an allowance for people to live under two separate roofs. You know, women come to me sometimes and say, you know, my husband beats me black and blue. What should I do? I said, you should move out tonight or he should move out. You should call the police or, you know, you, you need to guard your children in your, in your own body that God has given you. Um, and well, does that give me freedom to remarry? Well, what did Jesus say? If she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. Or if the shoes on the other foot, the husband should not send his wife away and so forth. So uh, I would say in answer to your question, this man who picked up and left and you don't even know where he is, you should commit that to prayer. Let God show you, you know, let God give you hardcore evidence that he is dead. And if he's not dead, then you should be praying for reconciliation that God would work in his heart. I mean, what if the guy came back and he said, you know, honey, I'm, I'm, I was a fool. I abandoned you. I abandoned the kids and I was the fool's fool, but God has changed my life. I'm born again. I'm a different person. And, and I want to win your trust back and show you that I really am different. And well, that would be an answer to your prayer. And that's what Paul is advocating here. So God can meet your needs, those lonely needs through the body of Christ and through himself. And he often meets those lonely needs and the needs that we have through the body of Christ. Paul said, Titus came and he comforted me in my depression. You say, didn't God comfort him in his depression? Yes, God did. But he used Titus to pull it off. So many times we, his hand, his feet, those who are called the body of Christ are the instruments that God uses to give us those fellowship needs, those relationship needs, if it's not being met in a marriage relationship. And so, no, you want to err on the side of obedience. And what, what a tremendous testimony it would be uh, to, to your friends for you to say, you know, I take so seriously what our Lord taught about the sacredness of the marriage covenant because I don't know whether he's dead or alive. I want to err on the side of obedience and pleasing my Lord. And that will mean so much to you when you stand at before the judgment seat of Christ and you meet the Lord eyeball to eyeball. Great will be your reward when we're in eternity where men neither marry nor are given in marriage. Great will be your reward that you sought to glorify your father and what a testimony it will be to other Christians about your view of the sacredness of marriage and the permanency of marriage. When I marry a couple at the end of the vows that I ask them to repeat after me, I say until 
Christ returns or until death severs the relationship. And that needs to be our perspective as believers. Great question. Let's go to the next one. 525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or you can always email us at tbl at net. Our next question it wants to know, how is it that churches and whole denominations are interpreting the Bible so incorrectly. Well, very well, actually, similar to we, one yeah, we, we, we had, had, so we kind of hit on that. So, yeah. uh, we have been stretched beyond our comfort zone, and we are feeling strongly convicted that this is the last straw. Our next uh, listener writes, now it's about theology. When we Google Andy Stanley and Shepherd, we find his thoughts on the topic of shepherding and its use in the Bible very uh, concerning. I am a preschool teacher at our church, and I teach about Jesus being our shepherd, and we sing, I am Jesus, little lamb. Respectfully, a homeschool family finding itself battling against the culture in so very many ways, wanting to be in the light, but also stepping out of the light to reach others, and thankful and blessed by both of your programs and the only radio station that they listen to. So. Well, again, you know, again, I, I would just say, you know, I'm not an Andy Stanley, Andy Stanley fan, never have been because of statements that he made as far back as 15 years ago. So we've never used this material in our church. That's not to say that members haven't, but, you know, it's a free country. But if someone says, well, we want to do an Andy Stanley series on a Sunday morning, you know, in our adult Bible fellowship, you know, the elders would say it's not going to happen here. Um, I remember sending my um, children's director to a children's meeting in uh, Andy Stanley's church 15 years ago, and they came back. They said they were dumbfounded. They, he, he said, Pastor, that pastors who, who preach expositionally are lazy and not creative. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. He said that. He went to the same seminary I did, that I did my master's of theology. He went through the same four-year THM program I did. Everything that he teaches is contrary to what he learned at Dallas Seminary. So much of it is just contrary. And so I have some deep, serious concerns over Andy Stanley and some of the statements that he has made, uh, especially uh, a sermon that he preached uh, when Gracie meets Truthy, and he very carefully um, uh, created an illustration with... um, these two homosexual men uh, that uh, he said were living in adultery because they were living with each other while married to their wives and therefore they could not serve in the church. But then after they divorce their wives, it's okay for them to serve in the church. My friend, that's condoning homosexuality. And uh, most people were dumbfounded when he made that statement. Absolutely dumbfounded that he could make such a statement and they called him out on it. Christian men who know him, who love him and, and said, you know, please clarify that was in April of 13. And here we are a few years later and he still has not clarified and refuses to clarify. I'm afraid that the worst is going to happen down the road with his church that he's going to come out in favor of gay, the gay lifestyle. What if, what if you heard this quotation? Tell me if you think this is a quotation of orthodoxy. And by the way, it's not taken out of context. And I know how people can twist someone else's words because I've had that done to myself. And I'll say, well, if you read the paragraph before and the paragraph after, 
then you would see that that's not what I actually said. So this is not taken out of context. But what if someone said to you this, the foundation of our faith is not the scripture. The foundation of our faith is not the infallibility of the Bible. The foundation of our faith is something that happened in history. And the issue is always who is Jesus. That's always the issue. The scripture is simply a collection of ancient documents that tell that story. You'd say, well, oh, man, that, that, that's really shaky. Now, it is true that Christ's you know, death and resurrection is the basis of our salvation. But it's very misleading to say that the foundation of our faith is not the scripture. Everything that we believe about Jesus is found in scripture. The message of salvation comes to us in the Bible. And apart from that, there is no salvation. In fact, the Bible is the instrument that the Spirit of God uses as the seed that brings about conversion. You are not born again of perishable seed like you were with your earthly dad and mom, but you were born again of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. No one has ever been saved apart from the Bible, apart from the word of God. Even before the Bible was written, people who met the living God uh, were saved through the word that he gave to by direct revelation, whether it was to Abel, whom the New Testament tells us uh, he was a prophet of God. And like all the prophets, as Acts 10 affirms, they preached of the coming Messiah. Um, anyone who has ever come to faith at any time in human history came to faith through the word of God. That's the instrument. So the message of salvation comes to us in the Bible and apart from which there is no salvation. That's why Paul can speak of the apostles message is the foundation of the church. Ephesians 2:20. Without their testimony, which has been inscripturated for us, there is no salvation. So, you know, when I read that statement, and by the way, Andy Stanley said it, man, I I would not want to call God's word simply a collection of ancient documents that tell us the story. That to me is very depreciating to the absolute authority of the word of God. And now when he came out last year at this time, and that's what you're referring to when the Southern Baptist Convention was going on, actually a little bit later, it's been less than a year uh, in June when they meet. And uh, he says, well, we shouldn't use the term shepherds. We're not shepherds. We're CEOs. That, that's just the world that has walked in the front door of the church. And so, no, I, I, I cannot endorse the man's ministry. And I, I, I fear, I just hope I'm wrong, but I fear then once Charles Stanley is taken home to be with the Lord, uh, that we'll see total apostasy on the part of Andy Stanley. But his methodology is wrong uh, in terms of how he does church. It's just wrong. And he has departed from the very things that he was taught and well taught at at Dallas Theological Seminary. And so I'm deeply concerned um, over what he has done and, and, and some of the things that he is saying. All right, our next question uh, is uh, from a listener who says, I've read on Facebook several people who had listened to a sermon on the napkin placed over Jesus' face in the tomb and the significance of that when the tomb was opened and the face cloth was placed in a separate place and the important message in that. I have investigated this and listened to several sermons on this but cannot find any validation that I'm satisfied with. What are your feelings on this? Well, it's a good question, and you might want to listen to a sermon that I preached on this very thing, uh, um, and uh, where I deal with the subject. I did preach through the Gospel of John, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. 
So let me just go to that chapter. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple referring to John, of course, and they were going to the tomb and the two were running together. And the other disciple, John being younger, ran ahead uh, faster than Peter and came to the tomb first and stooping in and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore came following him and entered the tomb and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which um, to get to your question, I think the King James renders napkin and the face cloth or the, the napkin, uh, the Bible says here, um, uh, had, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their home. So again, uh, this is important. Uh, the linen wrappings, the Bible says here in John 20, verse six, were lying there. And that word lying is a fantastic word in Greek. It means undisturbed in its proper place, which indicates, by the way, that no one had moved the body. And if thieves had been there, uh, they would not have left behind the expensive linen and even the more expensive spices. And if you've done a study on that and the amount that was used, it was very costly. Uh, the very thing that they would have come to, of course, steal. And had the chief priest come to steal the body, they would have most likely have picked him up with the grave clothes and, 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 and not have taken him naked and, and would have, you know, just paraded his body in the streets and said, here's your Messiah, um, Christians. They weren't called Christians then, of course, but here's your Messiah, you know, you who are members of the way. Here he is. He's dead. He's not risen. And so when Simon Peter comes and he enters into the tomb and he beholds the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, that, that, that's significant. Now, true to Peter's nature, he, he comes running in. He, he's, you know, first. But that detail would have jumped off the page of any first century reader. So John sees the linen clothes lying there empty and the cloth for the, the head lying all by itself. Why did Jesus take the head cloth and set it by itself? Remember, there's over 100 pounds of, of spices that are wrapped, that the body is wrapped in. They, they would wrap a Jewish body in, in clothes, uh, in piece, strips of cloth, and then they would cover that with this um, aromatic goo, so to speak. And so when they walked into the tomb and they saw the head cloth all by itself, they didn't see, and all the clothes are undisturbed, and he uses a very technical, specific Greek word. They're lying there, undisturbed. I, I've seen some movies on the life of Christ, and they walk into a tomb, and there's just like all these rags just thrown up in a big pile. That's not at all the picture that God gives us here in the, in the Greek New Testament. Um, they uh, come in, and they see a cocoon-like structure, and they know the cocoon is empty because the head cloth is separate from the rest of the cocoon. 
And that tells them that he just came through the grave clothes. You say, how did he do that? The same way that he came right through the locked doors through a wall there in the upper room uh, later that night. Uh, He's in his resurrection body. It's a real body. Uh, It's a physical body, but it's a resurrection body. He he wants to make it clear he's not a ghost, you know, um, come touch me, feel me, feel my hands, feel my side. He eats in their presence as recorded there on the beach scene that they have. And so he it's very, very specific. But what, what I think is so interesting is that belief in the resurrection preceded their understanding of Scripture. Um, they didn't manufacture a resurrection and say, oh, well, we got this Bible. They didn't even understand this yet fully concerning the Bible. But when they saw the grave clothes there and they saw that empty cocoon because that napkin was separate from the rest of the body, they knew that he was alive. They knew that he had literally actually physically come through the grave clothes. And then they're going to put together and God's going to lift the blinders off their eyes and they're going to see that this had been prophesied for, for, for centuries. So it's a, it's a wonderful piece of evidence for believing in an empty tomb. But I would direct you to my sermon on John chapter 20 in my exposition. If you go to searchthescriptures.org and you click on um, the Gospel of John, I, I think I preached around 60 sermons or something in the Gospel of John and click on that passage in, in John 20 and uh, you can listen to a much more detailed explanation. All right, about six minutes left in today's program. And Emmanuel from Cordova, Tennessee writes, does the Bible address groups or organizations such as fraternities and sororities? If someone I know and love is in fact a member of one, assuming they are unbiblical, what scriptures do I provide for sharing with them? Well, it's a good question. And first, I suppose you have to research the particular fraternity uh, that you're interested in. And then you have to ask some questions as to, what their motivation was. I went to Boston College. There were no fraternities or sororities on the campus. It was not an issue that I had to deal with. However, after I graduated from Boston College, I went into campus ministry and would work very often uh, with fraternity and sorority students. And so you're basically asking, should a Christian join a fraternity or sorority? And again, you've got to research each one and you need to ask yourself, well, what's your motivation? for wanting to join a fraternity and sorority. The average student that I would meet, I would say, well, why did you join this one? Well, sometimes it was an issue of status. You know, maybe one fraternity or sorority has more appeal and more name recognition and prestige than another. But very often when I would talk to students, mostly unbelievers, well, why did you join this one? Well, you know, they got the best parties and they really know how to do it. And, and, and that was their motivation. Um, well, if that's a Christian's motivation, then they probably aren't a Christian. If, if you're joining a fraternity or sorority because, you know, they got the best blowout, drunk out uh, type of parties, you're probably um, lost and you need a savior. Sometimes one wants to join it again as a status symbol, but that, that's an issue of pride. And the Bible affirms that we need to be humble people. Um, A verse that comes to my mind is one that I preached not that long ago in the book of Romans chapter 12 and verse 16. It says, do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Uh, Do not be wise in your own estimation. So God wants us to associate with people whom 
basically have nothing to give back to you. And I suppose there's few forms of pride that are worse than snobbery. Snobs are obsessed with the question of status. They, they divide people by fraternity, by sorority, by economics, by upper class, lower class, middle class, educated, uneducated, those they think are cool, those they think are not cool. And that kind of, unfortunately, that kind of thinking has translated into evangelical churches. And it's one of the reasons so many churches are so homogeneous. That is, when you look into the church, everyone looks alike. They're of the same basic race, economic status, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's a church that many times is driven by pride and snobbery or by a false paradigm that the seeker-sensitive movement has presented to the body of Christ. So you've got, you know, Saddleback Sam, as uh, they they call him, and uh, Saddleback Samantha, and they basically profile what their audience target is like. Well, Saddleback Sam makes between eighty and one hundred and ten thousand dollars. He's white, middle class. He's this. He's that, and that's whom we need to target. That's sheer snobbery, and that is against the basic fundamental teaching of scripture. Um, and so God is not saying, you know, we'll get into some program where you go quote unquote, reach the lowly. The, the real test of whether or not uh, you're a snob or not is by the way you deal with people you see in and around the community. W- would you invite someone to church that's totally different than yourself? Um, Maybe you have a PhD. Would you invite the mechanic who's working on your car? Would you care about his soul? Or if someone is of a different race, would you care for them? If you don't, then you're filled with snobbery and pride. And God would have us to to break that. And and two, I think, if, if a person's a believer, they need to ask another set of questions. You know, a fraternity and sorority... Um, might be a good thing to join if their goal is to walk in holiness. They're not going to compromise, in which case they're going to come under probably a lot of persecution. And in many cases, they would never even make it through, you know, the so-called hell week and the process that they go through to join the fraternity. Because so many of these fraternities, though hazing is illegal, they still have their own tests, so to speak. And so you have to do certain things, which for the most part are very ungodly. And I say that from experience because I worked for in 12 years in campus ministry, just wicked things. And really a, a born again believer should be asking, well, maybe there's a good Christian group on the campus like the navigators, or maybe there's a, a local church ministry that has a, an outreach to the local campus. Uh, You want to guard your heart, you know, don't be misled. The Bible says bad company corrupts good character. He who walks with the wise becomes wise, but a companion of fools will always suffer harm. And so our our, our thinking and our decision-making process needs to be rooted in the word of God. And so much of what you see in the fraternity sorority system is rooted today in the world. Maybe it didn't start that way a hundred years ago when some of these groups started, but that's where they are today, and it's really pretty sad. Anyway, we're out of time, but thanks for joining us today for the Bible Line, and I hope that you will walk with Christ. 